Hello. Welcome to another episode of Grad Chat from PhD Balance, where we talk about topics of grad school, beyond academic research, and that may be more difficult to talk about in our day-to-day. I'm your host, Faye Lin, and I'm a PhD candidate in biochemistry at UCLA. If you like what you see here, check out the PhD Balance YouTube channel for more grad chats, and don't forget to subscribe for notifications about when we go live. Our topic today is reporting in academia, and I'm excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Desi Clark. Desi completed her PhD in community sustainability at Michigan State University in 2020. Her doctoral work focused on evaluating community-based programs and organizations that serve survivors of intimate partner violence. However, today, Desi is joining us to talk about reporting discrimination, harassment, abuse, and misconduct in academia. So welcome, Desi. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited about this. Yeah, I think this is such an important topic, especially when we're grad students, and I'm a current grad student, you have this feeling of powerlessness when navigating academia. So if you want to start just saying, what, what is your story and what got you interested in talking about reporting in academia today? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think that my interest in talking about this is because I went through it. And when I was going through it, I at least wasn't aware of a lot of people talking about what these things felt like. Um, and so I kind of felt like I was a little bit alone. And so my hope today is to talk a little bit about this and make people that are going through it or considering going through it, feel like they're um, not alone. So my story is a little bit complicated, but the really quick overview is that I, in 2016, I decided to get my PhD at Michigan State University in the Department of Psychology, specifically the Ecological Community Program. Uh, I chose that program because I really wanted to do work with um, survivors of intimate partner violence. And there was someone there on faculty Dr. Chris Sullivan, who was really, really well known in the field. Um, And I was just thrilled at the fact that I might get the chance to work with her. Um, But after a few years of um, verbal and emotional abuse, harassment, um, discrimination, and some real serious issues around research and spending, Um, I really felt like it was an environment that I needed to get out of. I wasn't sure that if I stayed in it, um, I would be able to graduate. The things that were happening, um, especially since we were working with survivors, were really um, jarring to me. Uh, I didn't think that they were things that were ethical or best practices. And, And then, of course, the personal toll of being subjected to intense emotional abuse on, you know, a a very frequent basis was something that, you know, I I just didn't think that I could personally deal with anymore. Yeah. And thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story, because this isn't something that's easy to share with people, but yet it's so important. And I think it's going to help a lot of people today. uh, The tips that you share, because I know I've heard stories of a lot of people going through similar experiences and wondering what it's going to be like to if they're considering reporting or or already going through the process. So we had a wealth of questions submitted from social media. And one question here says, there was so much abuse, harassment, and unethical behavior by your supervisor. Did people around you not notice or did they just tell you to put up with it? 
Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I, I think that um, it depends on the, the specific kind of misconduct we're talking about, but as far as the behavior, the emotional and the verbal abuse, I think it was really normalized. I think that a lot of people that worked for this person had similar issues. Um, and I think that it was something that we all kind of felt like we were going through together. I think one of the other things that made it hard in this specific situation is that, you know, people that are abusive, they groom allies, right? And so there's usually, you know, other faculty or there's some students that these people really kind of court, um, you know, to their side. And so I think it made it hard too, because there would be a handful of us that would be like, oh my gosh, this is happening to us. You know, this is awful. But then there would always be like that one person that was like, well, I had a great meeting. Things are going great with me. And so you kind of were like, okay, like maybe, you know, maybe it's just me. I think also too, one of the things that's really important here is this is somebody that, you know, is a tenured full professor, had 30 plus years at the university and brought in millions of dollars worth of grants. And so I think even though other faculty members or administrators might've seen or heard or even suspected wrongdoing, you know, a lot of people aren't willing to take someone like that on, especially when that's someone that brings in a lot of money. Um, and so I think it was, I think that there might have been some people that didn't know because they're being groomed. I think there were some people that were in denial. And then I think there were some people that really did not even want to hear a whisper of something wrong going on because then they felt like they might have to do something about it. And that wasn't something they'd be willing to do. Yeah, there's so many factors here too. Like not, like we always think about, well, what is the, the human, you know, moral thing to do, support other people and hear them out. Right. But then there are these other aspects of, this is someone with a very high up powerful professional position, yeah. speaking out against them has certain consequences and all these other layers to navigate when standing up for yourself, standing up for, for being treated with basic, basic respect. And I think that's the power dynamic is a huge theme when we talk about graduate students and navigating grad school. And there are a couple of questions here that are interested in the reporting process itself, yeah. right? So one of the questions here that says, from what you mentioned during your uh, Instagram takeover and in your intro, you reported abuse not only internally in your institution, but externally too. Is that correct? And can you explain a little bit about the difference between these? Yeah, yeah, so I did. Um, so I reported internally. Um, I reported, you know, to my department, to my college, but I also went through official um, offices. So at MSU, there's an Office of Institutional Equity that handles Title IX, Title VII type complaints. So I reported there. There's a research misconduct office that I reported to. We were working with human subjects. So I, you know, reported to our institutional review board. So I did a lot of reporting within the university and I'll circle back to what that was like, but I also want to kind of cover the external. So I did, I did report externally. This was something I was so not aware of until I had honestly lawyers in my life that were talking about the different options. Um, so you can, you can report to the Office of Civil Rights. You can report things to FERPA um, if there's any violations of your privacy. When you have external dollars, you can report to where those uh, dollars come from. So Department of Health and Human Services, maybe, Department of Justice in my case. Um, and then if you have IRB issues that are happening and you don't feel like your institutional review board is taking them seriously, you can again go above to Health and Human Services and there's some oversight there. I forget the exact name of the office, but there's some oversight there for um, IRBs uh, at public institutions. 
Um, and then I also went to politicians. I went to um, my senators, my, rep my representatives. Um, I also pursued talking to the media. So there was kind of a lot of different ways that I went about trying to report these things. Um, I will say that reporting in general is really traumatic. I, there were so many times when I was going through it that I was like, oh my gosh, this might actually be worse than what happened to me because you're forced to relive things. You're forced to have people question you. And you know, everyone has a right to provide their own witnesses or evidence. And so sometimes you end up in a situation where you know, the person that you're reporting pulls in other faculty members to say bad things about you or other students even. And so that can be something that's really hard to handle. Um, I say that not to scare anyone from reporting, but to be honest about it, because I had this very rose colored glass perspective that I would just be able to walk into these offices. I knew I was telling the truth. I would say my truth. People would, would believe me and justice would be served. And that is not at all what happened. And it's not what happens for most people. Um, so I think that, you know, there's a lot you need to prepare yourself for if you're going to take these routes, particularly within the institution, because the institution is going to try and protect itself. And so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of impacts on your mental health. It can be very isolating people that you think are your allies or your friends, you know, that say that you're doing the right thing might also not really show up in the end because there's also, you know, students are worried about their employment or how this can impact, you know, their, their trajectory through the program if they kind of stand by you. So I think that um, going through that process, you really need a good support system. And I think you really, you really need to be prepared for the fact that even when people, you know, in the Title IX office, for example, sit with you and kind of act like they might be on your side, um, there's a real chance that you're going to end up reading a report that says things that are really, really hurtful to you, um, or they're going to put out something that says there's no finding. And, and that kind of um, hearing those things and seeing those things can be really gutting, especially when you've really bared your trauma um, to people that you think are there to help you. Yeah, I, I think that's such an important point to highlight. And I actually relate a lot to what you're saying as someone who's been in these, you know, mental health awareness spaces and pointing out the stigma and, and having to have these conversations with people about, you know, what what's what's wrong here and have and feeling so unseen, right? The the response is very much what you were describing where maybe, you know, you have to explain the stuff that you're experiencing and people questioning you. I think for people who haven't been on this side, that's something they don't expect. And like you mentioned, like when I first started out in these spaces as well, I imagined, well, there's a system set up to support people and I should be fine. But unfortunately that isn't the case and it's so frustrating and there's so many things to improve. But I, I think it's so important to, like you said, prepare people for this process because it's so difficult to experience this and then have to really advocate in a hard system. Totally. And I think, you know, I walked into these things like I knew in my mind, she's going to say bad things about me. Of course she is. She's going to defend herself. It's not going to be pretty. But what I didn't expect was that there would be other people that would come in and really have her back. Um, and at, at, at best, they would just say good things about her, which was hard to read, right? This person did all these things to me and to sit here and read someone's statement where they're like, well, she's renowned for this work. You know, she's gotten a lot of grant dollars that hurts. But at worst, you have people that are willing to come in and say, I just don't think that would happen. There's no way that, you know, this person would do that. And so 
you know, it's one thing to read it once from the person that you've accused, right? But when you start reading it from faculty and administrators and students, it starts to really grate on you because you're like, oh my gosh, like I, I'm, I want, who would go through this willingly? Like nobody would. Um, and so it was one of those things where I, I didn't expect that. And I wish I would have known and prepared for that more. Yeah, because it's so invalidating, especially mm-hmm. like you said, it's not only this person that you're reporting about, but then a series of other people saying something yeah. that is inconsistent with your experience. And that is that is so tough to, to face. And it looks like we have a question in the chat that says, have you seen grad student unions like MSUs provide support or assistance in such abusive advisor situations? So that's really interesting. So the issue at MSU was that people that were employed as teaching assistants, so graduate students that were TAs were allowed to unionize. If you were a graduate student RA or research assistant, you could not join the union. So I was a research assistant. And so those supports were limited. I did meet with people um, in the union and I think they were all very sympathetic. They wanted to be helpful. Some of them were just honestly mad as hell, like no other way to put it, but I wasn't a member of that. And so a lot of the resources that unions have to kind of help support and fight for you, I, I didn't have that because I couldn't join as a research assistant. Wow. Yeah. No, it's interesting yeah. how there's so many bureaucratic and logistical things too, as far as what resources you have access to or who you can reach out to. And I th- that's just another layer of difficulty when you're going through this process. Yeah. Let's see. All right. This next question here says, what was the tipping point that made you decide I'm going to report this? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. So I think one of the things that, um, that I don't hear a lot about in public storytelling, but I think it's very true with the people I've talked to is the sense of the fact that this was, this is a person that clearly, you know, was mean to me, very, um, very critical of my skills of who I was as a person. You know, I think by all, by everything she did, you would easily feel like she didn't like me. That's how I felt, right? She, she clearly didn't like me, but no matter how much criticism that she had of me, which I think is common of abusers, she wanted to have control over me. And so she wouldn't let me do other things. I never wanted to be public about any of this. I wanted to get other opportunities, change my RA, get a TA. Um, I, I wanted to just get away from it. And I had no interest in, in really kind of uh, blowing all of this up for lack of a better word. And so I had been really actively pursuing other opportunities for funding. So I didn't have to work with her anymore. Um, but one of the things that ended up happening and that the tipping point was I had finally secured a teaching assistant position for the following summer. So that would have been summer for 2019. Very excited. I put in for it. The department granted it super thrilled. I'm going to get out. I'm going to be able to teach. It'll be a break from her at least for the meantime. And I'll figure something else out. Um, she contacted the department chair, or I actually think it was the, um, graduate program director, one of the two. And uh, she had basically had that TI taken from me. And so it was removed. I wasn't going to be able to teach. And I just completely, completely knew I couldn't take it anymore. The only thing that was mentally keeping me afloat was this idea that I could have a break from all the things that were happening to me. And for her to have the power and the reach to contact someone and have an opportunity removed from me, I felt hopeless. And, and in, in that moment, I think I realized, you know, there's no way that I'm going to get out of this. There's no, there's no escaping her even for a brief moment in time. And so for me, you know, 
I had tried so diplomatically. I, I actually at one point I asked her to fire me. I had tried so hard to get away and she was never going to let me. And so the only option I had was to really go the nuclear route and just be very public about all the things that had happened. Wow. That, that sounds like such a tough situation to go through. And it, it, it did seem like out of, like you said, all of these things, it wasn't your goal to make this, you know, blow this into a big reporting effort. It was out of just continued being treated very poorly by, by someone who really needs to learn how to respect people. Well, and I think too, one of the things I want to touch on, because, you know, we talk about the abuse part, but, you know, I've, I've said there is research misconduct and financial issues here as well. And one of the things that I think happens to graduate students and surely happened to me was that you realize that you've become complicit in the things these people are doing, right? My name is on these projects. I'm an RA on these, you know, projects where these ledgers aren't right. And so it quickly became a thing, you know, once I, I originally just supported the abuse and I had just said, I, you know, I can't take this anymore. But then upon, you know, really sitting and taking account of my situation, I realized there are things that have happened that I'm now implicated in. And I really need to get ahead of this. I never wanted to talk about any of it. But as soon as I saw her trying to, you know, kind of reverse things and flip it back on me, I knew that she would try and put these other things onto me as well. And so I really needed to make sure that I was protecting myself and doing something which was really uncomfortable which is saying these bad things happened in this research practices. I was a part of them, which is an absolutely very hard thing to say um, and really make sure that it was known, you know, this is how it went down. She was the PI. She was the one instructing me and others to, to do these things. It wasn't something that we did. It was what we were told to do. And thankfully I had emails and things that showed all of that. Um, but I think that I know from just talking to other graduate students, when you feel implicated in the misconduct that your advisor has done, there's an added layer of fear because you're really, really worried you're going to ruin your own life just trying to do the right thing. Yeah, I think that's such a great point and something that a lot of grad students are can run into as far as having, if it's research misconduct or this other layer of professional development where so much of our development is based on our advisor and our relationship with our advisor. And this kind of ties into this next question we have here that says, how do you deal with references afterwards? Do people ask why you changed advisor? Yeah, that was, um, that's a really good question. So I think for me, one of the good things that did happen was, so I was, um, so like many universities, Michigan State has a lot of colleges within it. And so I was in the Department of Psychology in the College of Social Science. And it became very clear that I was not gonna have support in that department for sure, definitely not in that college. And there was another department that was really closely related on the community-based work. um, And that happened to be the Department of Community Sustainability which was in a different college altogether. So the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources. I was very lucky that I had support all the way up to the Dean's office um, to really get out of my bad situation and transfer departments. So I I was lucky enough to end up graduating with a, a chair and a committee that were super fantastic, very supportive, but yeah, the, the end all be all is that still I did change advisors and I did change very late and I had to change from someone that was very topically related to someone that wasn't related at all. And so when I was on the job market, I spent a lot of time thinking through how I was going to answer this question because 
you, you have to be very careful, right? You don't know who knows who you don't want to be seen to be, you know, being malicious or trying to malign anyone. And so I, I really walked through a, a couple of different things. I, I would generally say things like, you know, um, our working styles weren't compatible. I would, um, say that, you know, my, my, uh, research took a different, uh, direction or a different turn, um, that the program that I transferred into was more aligned with my, my ultimate goals, which is actually true. So I would kind of walk around, um, the actual issues because I didn't really want to bring those things up. I don't want, I never wanted a job interview to be about her. It should be about me. I'm the person interviewing. That being said though, once you go public, people Google you and they know. And so I did have to really get myself ready for the, for the people that wanted to dig because they would, you know, you would go to a campus interview and then have a, you do a whole day long. This actually happened to me of talking and meeting you're starving they give you one glass of wine and then they're like so I hear you worked with Dr. Chris Sullivan and and it's like oh no you know no pump the brakes we're not going to talk about this and so I really had to get comfortable and confident in saying yes I did it didn't work out and now I'm going to pivot to talk about something else um I think one of the things I said on the takeover is to what degree has not having her reference hurt me? I'll never know. And I can't speculate, but um, I think the best thing you can do is to just really shut down the conversation and come up with the list of reasons why you can explain why you shifted, Um, but do so in a way that's really diplomatic. Going high is always the answer. Yeah. I think those are, those are great tips. And I think it's, it's frustrating to have to be this strategic when ultimately this, this is just complete disrespect and, you know, you you deserve something better, but now you have to do all the work to self-advocate and to be strategic and kind of walk around the, these, the issue, because that's what's needed to, right, go forward. Yeah. That is just such a frustrating, burden, something that, you know, I I feel like in my experiences, I've gone through versions of this and I'm just like, ah, no, it's um, so exhausting. I can't tell you how many times, like, you just get to the place you're going to be like, she was really abusive. And so I just couldn't take it anymore. But you can't say that. <laughs> you, but, it, but it gets tiring to just continue to have to do that emotional work of explaining yourself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think a lot of students are interested in how to, I mean, ideally make this process easier. So one of the questions here that says, does having such a terrible experience still get to you? What changes would you like to see made so students have more support if they need to report? Yeah. So I think that, you know, the first question is, it still gets me, you know, it's trauma, it's trauma, and it's going to last a long time, if not forever. I I will say that things have gotten a lot better. I you know, if you would have told me now, what, two years ago that I would ever be happy again, I would have been like, you are so full of it. You, there's no way I'll ever, I'll ever be in a good space. I am now. Um, but there are little things that happen, right? She is still someone that's well-sighted and, and, you know, pretty renowned in the field. And so, you know, I come across her name a lot. I come across people talking to her. They're talking about her to me. There are some people that don't know. And so they'll say things like, oh, you know, you worked with Chris, how great was that? And so it's kind of this lasting thing that I've had to contend with. And I think it also does color how I, you know, act in other situations. I think I'm pretty hypervigilant, right? 
I want to make sure when I'm doing research that ethically all of the ducks are in a row. I want to make sure that nothing is going wrong. I'm, I'm constantly a little bit on guard because I don't want to end up in a bad situation again. That being said, I think that there are some really important things that we could do to make these, this easier. I think that um, I'm not sure how this would work out in structure because this person would likely be employed by the institution, which makes them inherently a little bit problematic, but some kind of an advocate that walks you through all of the processes. So I know that in the Title IX office at MSU, I think they have just done this with Title IX cases, but they handled Title IX and Title VII, which is where disability, race, and other things go a little bit differently. So there's no one that walked me through the process to tell me what to expect. There is absolutely no one in the research misconduct office, which at MSU is crazily a, an office of one, um, to, to try and help me figure out what is it gonna mean to report these different things. Um, and so I think that if you have people that can help students understand the process, I think that that's really important. Um, and I think actually there is a space for, you know, people who have the time and expertise to really volunteer that to help students write complaints to these external bodies. So for example, I had a really great lawyer and she was like, you know, filing a FERPA complaint is not that hard. You're a smart girl. I think you can handle this. And I could. And now that I figured out how to do it and I, I did it successfully, I have whenever other students have asked, here you go, here's what I wrote. You know, you know, try and mirror something like this. This is a successful FERPA complaint. And so I think just having people in the kind of graduate student early career community that are willing to help navigate these systems would be really helpful. But I think the biggest thing, and like this, I feel very strongly about this. Everyone that goes through this, no matter what you're reporting, they're worried about their career. They're worried that if they do this, their career is over. And so to people that are in, you know, more senior positions, this is my call to you. If there's somebody that you hear about, a graduate student or someone early career in your field or discipline that is going through something, reach out to them and give them opportunities to collaborate. Give them opportunities to work on projects. Give them opportunities to work on papers. That goes a long way. That is something that no one ever did for me. It's, it's something that was never offered to me, but it would have made me feel better because we all care deeply, deeply about the research that we're doing. That's why we're getting a PhD in it. No one wants to see that go away. And so I think that it would really help students feel empowered to report and feel okay about reporting if they knew that there were people out there that are gonna help them continue their experiments, their projects, their research. I think that that would make people feel a lot more comfortable. And I think you would see a lot more people willing to speak up because there would quickly become a network of people willing to support students in their career goals. I love that. I love that so much because I think oftentimes the conversation is so centered on, well, you know, you got to advocate for yourself, tell other people your needs, you know, educate other people, which <laughs> it's so, it's so important for other people to be allies. Like you said, like there's a huge power dynamic between grad students and advisors. And if there are advisors who are able to leverage their power to just help people who are starting out, uh, maybe it, it could be grad students getting their PhD, still working their way up. That's super impactful. And I think yeah. that that just helps so much. And I think oftentimes the narrative is, you know, this is your problem and you deal with it. Whereas there, it is so impactful for allies to step in and it's like, okay, no one says, there's no law that says you have to help other people, right. but 
it's great to help other people. <laughs> right. Well, and well wishes are super great. I, I was very happy to see people in the community reach out and tell me they believe me and they supported me. But even if you don't have funding, right, review job materials, use your network to help these students get jobs, do informational interviews. There's so many ways that if you are in a position where you have a career in these areas, you can help other people that don't. You know, it's so great that people are willing to be so supportive, but what we really need are jobs and money. Those things are very important. And so I think to the extent that people can give those well wishes and be supportive, but also do so in a way that doesn't leave students worried about being homeless or without job opportunities. I think that's the biggest thing that people can do. And so I would love to see more active reach outs. And I, I think too, you know, we put this, like you said, a lot on the individual, you know, you could easily say, well, Desi, you should have reached out to more people in your field to, you know, try and find these opportunities. When you're worried about retaliation, when you're experiencing retaliation, you have no idea who is safe. There is no way I'm going to cold email, you know, so-and-so to see if they'll, you know, work with me when I don't know who's talking to who about what. And so kind of flipping that model and putting it on the people that can be allies and advocates to, to reach out a little bit and help people that are struggling. I think that's the better way to go. Yeah, I love that. And that's such a theme in so many aspects of building a better society. Stop putting the onus on the individual who isn't struggling out of, uh, you know, for mental health, you know, the stigma's weakness or et cetera. But there are systemic issues that are treating people poorly. And we need to hold those systems accountable and build better services and resources for so that so that we can better lift up everyone. Right. And not have to go through all of these like really difficult obstacles that you had to go through. Yeah. Yeah. And let's see, we have a question from the chat that says, considering the amount of work that advisors expect from grad students, how do you think uh, we should differentiate between abuse versus a grind that actually helps students reach their full potential? Like, how do you differentiate? Yeah. yeah I mean, I, <laughs> that's, that's a good question. I mean, I think you know, there's some pretty clear issues of work-life balance, right? If you're putting students in a position where they are working more than they're paid, so that's, that's number one for me. If they're working more than they're paid, if, they're, if it's cutting into nights and weekends, if it's cutting into that personal time, if you're dealing with issues, you're not getting enough sleep because you're working, um, you're, you're finding yourself in a situation where you can't enjoy you know, I don't know, going out for the day with a friend because you know that you're going to get emails or texts or whatnot from your advisor. I think, I think that's where you start to get into this at, at minimum, a culture of overwork. Um, and so I think that we need to be really cautious about overworking students. I, I think that it's really easy for um, advisors to say, well, if you just work harder, um, then this will benefit your career. But if we're talking about academic careers, that's just not true. I mean, there are some very brilliant people that I know in my life that have impressive CVs and they have not been able to secure a tenure track job. The, the academic job situation is really bad. And I think that if there's any advisor out there saying to a graduate student, if you just work harder, you're gonna get this job you want, I think that they're likely lying to you. Um, and so I, I think we need to be careful about that. But I also think this line between overwork and abuse, right? You know, there's one thing that if you end up in a situation where you're being hurt, either, you know, emotionally, physically, now we've crossed into a place where this is abusive behavior. And I, I think that that's something that really needs to be dealt with. And it's very serious, right? I, I'm thinking of a story in my head, something that also happened at MSU 
um, with students in the College of Engineering who were being put in dangerous situations. Um, they were being, they were having to mix um, chemicals and compounds without proper protective equipment. They were getting sick. Um, there was really serious issues. I don't know where that lawsuit ever landed, but I, I remember reading about it. And so I think if you end up in a situation like that where you're, you're being harmed, um, I think then, then definitely something needs to be done. Someone needs to step in and, and appropriately punish the person doing that. So I think you kind of have a couple of different issues here. We all work hard in graduate school. I don't know a single graduate student who's, who's like, I didn't work hard, like kind of built into it, but we need to respect people's work-life balance and their, that see them as a whole person, not just, you know, employee. Yeah. And I, I also think it speaks to a deeper toxic aspect of academia where it's really normalized to say to overwork yourself. And then you do, because of this culture, you think that's, that's normal and you're going to reach your, right. your potential when in reality, that's just a toxic definition, a, a definition that perpetuates, you know, the mental health stigma and perpetuates like it, it normalizes disrespecting uh, people who don't have power and all of that. So I think it also speaks to this ingrained culture that is just a toxic definition that we need to we need to change. Absolutely. I mean, I'll, I know that a lot of people hustle and grind in that 20 hours, right? Like it, there's no it's, it's all hard work. Exactly. Let's see, we are running out of time for this grad chat. It has been so great and so informative. And thank you so much, Desi, for being just so vulnerable and sharing your story because I yeah. am sure it's going to benefit so many people. Is there anything that comes to mind that you want to leave our audience with that maybe we haven't touched upon? Yeah, I think the one thing I want to say um, is, so there are a lot of students that go through reporting these different things. And I think that most often the stories that you hear about or the stories that make it to the media are the stories where someone has been found of wrongdoing. And that is not the case for most people. And that was not my case either. Um, I think that it's really hard for people that have, have ended up in a situation where they've reported and there has been no justice to stand up and say, yeah, this happened to me. They did not find this person guilty of doing these things. Um, but this is still my story. And so I think that one of the things I just kind of want to leave here with is that if you have gone through this or going through this and you do not get the justice that you deserve, your story is still your story. You deserve to be believed and you are not alone. I am up here saying all of this stuff and I am almost positive that I will hear back from this person that I've been talking about for this 40 minutes. Um, and, and I, I just want everyone to know that, you know, rep representation matters and most of us end up in a situation where we don't get justice for the things that we've been through. And that is something that you're not alone on and it doesn't make your situation any less than anybody else's. I love that so much. Everyone's story matters. And if you are, you know, facing someone who wants to share their story, take the time to listen yeah. to because that is that is so important for for being seen. I think oftentimes people people don't listen. No. <laughs> Overwhelming people just don't have listening skills. But everyone's story matters. I love it. I love it. <laughs> 
All right. This has been Grad Chat from PhD Balance. If you're just tuning in and liked what you see, make sure you subscribe to the PhD Balance YouTube channel for notifications about when we go live and check out our other Grad Chats on our channel. So I guess we'll see you next time. We go live every Saturday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. And until then, I guess we will see you later. Bye.